Medic 43, District 1, Engine 51, Response, Cardiac Arrest. Hello, everyone. Welcome again to the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. It's Dr. Casey Patrick, and today I'm going to be talking to you guys a little bit about pediatric one-pill killers. So starting off, when we talk about one-pill killers, what, what am I talking about? And it's a medication that in a single pill or a small volume of an adult dose can be deadly for a pediatric patient. So let's take iron, for example. 10-kilo child has to take 10 325-milligram iron tablets to achieve toxicity. So iron ferrosulfate is not going to be a one pill killer. It's going to be tough for a toddler to get down 10 iron pills. So we're talking about one pill, small volume, deadly. Why do we care? Well, for you guys out there that have toddlers, you know, the one, two, three-year-olds, they're they're exploring, they're learning their hands and that their hands work and colors, tastes, they're curious, put things in their mouths. So again, typically for one pill killers and for pediatric ingestions in general, your higher instance is going to be in the age between one and three years old. On that note, let's start out with a case. You're called to a two-year-old male who's playing in the kitchen and was found playing in granny's spill purse. There's meds all over the floor, pill case spilled wide open. Uh, she takes medications for diabetes, for high blood pressure, and for high cholesterol. But like everyone that we see, she doesn't know the names. She takes the little blue one and the uh, circular white one and ex- expects you to know what drug that is. I tell folks when they when they give me that story that back in 1945 when there were 15 or 20 medications that was possible but in today's world where there are 15 to 20 formulations of each dose that that's not exactly uh, not doable for my brain. So she doesn't know all the names. The child's playful. The child's acting normally. Running around. Looks, looks like a champ. Dad's frustrated. Didn't really want EMS to come anyways. He doesn't want the child transported. How do you approach that situation? And it can be be a little tough, right? Because the child looks great. You don't know what he took. There's, you know, granny's meds all on the floor. Don't know if he took anything at all. Let's start out with some rules. And when we think about potential pediatric ingestion cases, we're going to operate by these rules at all time. First off, number one, assume the ingestion was as late as possible. And what do I mean by that? I mean that when we think about any ingestion, whether it's adult or pediatric, the more observation we have, the more time we have to see that the patient is normal, whether that's mental status-wise, whether that's vital sign-wise, the more reassured we are. So assume that that child took the most dangerous pill that grandma could possibly have had right before you walked in the door. In other words, assume that you need to observe them longer. So that's number one. Number two, assume no spillage. You know, assume that anything that could have possibly been taken was taken. Again, assume the child got the max amount. Number three, assume that all unaccounted for medications were taken. So we're all experts at going into the scene and seeing, you know, a half-empty pill bottle and saying there was 50 prescribed a week ago and, you know, calculating out how many meds it's possible that the patient could have overdosed on. Take the same principle to, you know, potential pediatric overdoses and say, if granny's missing Thursday, Friday, and Saturday's meds out of the, out of the pill case, assume that the max amount was taken. And also, one of the things that can happen in, in daycare center settings or in, in settings where you've got siblings, cousins playing together is there can be multiple children involved. And it's always safest to assume that one child took all of the pills. And again, this is a situation where you want to assume the worst case scenario is what we're getting at here. And number five, 
anything that's long acting is always going to be worse. So anything that's an extended release, an XR, um, CR, controlled release, any of those types of medications, and we know those exist for, for seizure meds, for blood pressure meds, for lots out there. Um, anytime we see an extended release medication, that's always going to get our antennas up, make us worry a little bit more. So go back through those rules again. Assume the ingestion was late as possible. Assume no spillage. Assume that all unaccounted for medications were taken. Assume that a single child took them all and beware of thin release meds. Let's talk about some of these one pill killers. And I've got a list of nine, nine or 10 here. And these are a combination of some of the more common ones and some of the more deadly ones. And we're just going to kind of run through them and talk about the high points. So let's start off with probably on this list, a couple that are going to be one of the more common ones that we see, and that are going to be the calcium channel blockers and the beta blockers. Again, in a group, you know, both of these are antihypertensives and the common ones that we're going to see, probably the most common example of each of these groups are going to be amlodipine or Norvasc for the calcium channel blockers and metoprolol or toprol, low presser um, for the beta blockers. If you think about what these medications are used for, it's pretty easy to extrapolate what the symptoms are going to be in an overdose situation. So these kids are going to be bradycardic and hypotensive. Sometimes a beta blocker and a calcium channel blocker overdose can look almost exactly alike. One of the clues that can tip you off real quickly is the glucose level. So calcium channel blockers are going to be hyperglycemic and beta blockers are going to be hypoglycemic. And our treatment for these folks are going to be our basic resuscitation measures, right? For a hypotensive bradycardic kid, we're going to think about fluids, atropine, pressors. If it's a calcium channel blocker overdose, we can give calcium to try to counteract that. In the super sick kids, once they get to the hospital, we're going to think about things like high-dose insulin for calcium channel blocker overdoses, even, even ECMO, put them on bypass. And there's case reports of, of children that were super sick surviving and walking out intact with ECMO. You know, again, going back to our first rule, assume the ingestion was as late as possible. It's really important in calcium channel blocker and beta blocker overdoses when extended release forms were used. There are documented cases in the literature of time of onset for symptomatic decline, for bradycardia, for hypotension to show up greater than 12 hours after ingestion of the pill, which gets us into our, everyone's favorite topic when it comes to uh, toxic ingestions, taking, you know, overdoses, you know, ingestion of pills, and that's do we decontaminate these folks. And I think, you know, from a pre-hospital standpoint, we've taken charcoal off of the trucks here at MCHD. You may have charcoal on your, on your trucks for your listeners out there, and that's taken on a case-by-case basis. Charcoal is Again, got to be given to patients that are awake and alert. I think, you know, it's encouraged more from the toxicology side when extended release tablets have been taken. So that's a situation where you would want to consider it. But again, I think I'd want to do this in, in conjunction with my, with my emergency department folks, with Poison Control Center, and depending on your protocols. The second group, and again, this is probably the, you know, another, another one of the more common medications that we see every day. And these are going to be the diabetic meds and specifically the sulfonylureas. And that's your glyburide and glipizide. What do those do? Just quick review. Those are medicines we use in, in diabetics, specifically uh, type 2 diabetics, uh, to decrease their circulating blood sugar. And those act on the pancreas to increase the pancreatic release of insulin. Again, a kid takes one of grandma's glipizides and going to have way more insulin circulating than nature intended. That's going to cause hypoglycemia. So again, a pretty obvious uh, result from taking a, an anti-hyperglycemic. There is a case report in the literature of a two-year-old who took a five milligram glipizide and 11 hours post-ingestion after treatment still had a sugar of 49. So from the standpoint of, you know, can these be deadly? That was with treatment. 11 hours later, still hypoglycemic. Um, so what are you going to watch for in these kids? Obviously the same thing you'd watch for in, in an adult. 
who had too much insulin or too, too much glipizide or too much globulin on board, and that's going to be the symptoms of hypoglycemia. Ultramental status treatment, just as obvious, it's going to be dextrose. And again, depending on your uh, sugar protocol with your service, whether or not you have D10, D50, D25, um, follow your protocol and, and treat the sugar. This is a, a common medication and one that I think it'd be very easy to see uh, a child ha- be exposed to glyburide or glipizide in, in the floor when gra- grandma spills her meds. That's one that should really scare you a little bit and make you make sure you're watching mental status. Make sure you check a finger stick if you're concerned. And again, don't let dad uh, refuse transport on that child. So moving on to number three, our third group. And I don't want to belabor this one because I think we all know what would happen here, but it's it's one that can be deadly and that's the opiates. Um, we know these. We've talked about these in other podcasts. Obviously, the long-acting opiates are going to be worse. You're going to see decreased mental status, decreased respirations, you know, bradycardia, Narcan, Narcan, Narcan. Two and a half milligrams of hydrocodone has been deadly in infants. So this is one that we see a lot of, unfortunately. And unfortunately, kids have quite a bit of access to, so we've got to watch out for opiates in kids. Uh, fourth med on our list is aspirin and salicylates. And again, when we think about salicylates, as far as meds that people take, we, we think about aspirin is, is the number one example. But the toxicity of aspirin is 150 milligrams per kilogram. So a 10 kilogram child would have to take 1,500 milligrams of aspirin. Well, that's going to be quite a few, even full strength 325 milligram aspirin. So is aspirin really a one pill killer? It's not. Um, the form of salicylate that can get us into trouble is oil of wintergreen. And oil of wintergreen is 98% methyl salicylate. I didn't know what 98% methyl salicylate, whether that's significant or not. Um, but looking at this, one teaspoon, 5 mLs of methyl salicylate has 7,000 milligrams of salicylic acid, equivalent to 90 baby aspirin. So again, we think about one pill killers, it's small, single pill, or small volume. Now, where are we going to get methyl salicylate, oil wintergreen out there? I don't fully understand the essential oil craze. I don't want to step on anybody's toes, but oil of wintergreen is one of those that falls into the essential oils people use at home for aromatherapy. I will say, this is fact, I looked this up this weekend. The second question under the number one selling Amazon oil wintergreen was, and I quote, is this food grade? So enough said, you know, if you find a kid that's been in or around Oil of wintergreen, that should be really scary because it's very easy for them to get enough toxic salicylic acid. I'm sure that'll lead you to an obvious question. So we show up on a run dock and the three-year-old's been in uh, mom's essential oil bucket and spilled out some oil of wintergreen. What do we look for? What do we look for in a salicylate toxicity? And the symptoms can be all over the place. Uh, nausea and vomiting, ultramental status. Patients, you know, we know from aspirin overdoses can have respiratory difficulty from non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema. Aspirin overdoses get severe metabolic acidosis and from that can have compensatory tachypnea so they can have increased respiratory rate. And again, that can be a combination of of metabolic acidosis and compensation and non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema. Now the treatment for these folks is going to be like a lot of toxicology, going to be supportive. Once we get to the hospital, we can think about things like alkalinizing the urine um, and even hemodialysis to try to clear Uh, the salicylate from the system. So that's the salicylates. Next is a medication that's very possibly in in grandma's pill case, uh, still commonly used antihypertensive, and that's clonidine. Clonidine also has some some relatives, the imidazolines that are used as decongestant. The more common one there we know is afrin or oxymetazolin. I mean, these are central acting alpha-2 agonists that are used in clonidine in hypertension and in the decongestant 
uh, usage is going to be for uh, vasoconstriction. And you may ask, well, wait a second. So we're using clonidine as a blood pressure medication, and we're using oxymetazolin or afrin as a vasoconstrictor for decongestion that doesn't add up not to get too receptor nerdy on you but the central alpha 2 agonist action of clonidine allows for the antihypertensive uh, effect and in a topical form the oxymetazolin acts on alpha 1 receptors uh, in the nasal passages and that causes vasoconstriction what are we going to see in kids that take uh, 0.3 clonidine we're going to see hypotension we're going to see bradycardia we're going to see altered mental status to Central receptors also affect our, our mental status and have sedative effect. Um, these patients are also going to have pupillary constriction or meiosis as well. So these can really mimic, mimic opiates. And so I think if you had an unknown ingestion and you compared a clonidine beside a, a heroin or a oxycodone or, you know, another narcotic, um, you probably wouldn't know the difference. So I, you'd be absolutely within reason to give Narcan to both. Uh, the problem is, is that Narcan rarely works in clonidine only clonidine overdoses, excuse me, only around 15% of the time. So the treatment for, for a clonidine overdose is going to be fluids, atropine if they're bradycardic, and vasopressors if they're hypotensive. One of the interesting things I found when looking at the nasal decongestant portion of the imidazoline discussion is that there's actually quite a bit of variation with decongestant spray based on the orientation of the bottle. I think this is probably applicable to kids when you think about the fact that if the bottle is pointed downward, there's up to a 75-fold increase in the volume of liquid that's sprayed. And so I think it's a lot easier to get to that, that toxic level, again, just with changing of positioning of the bottle. If you think about how kids would play with it if a brother's, you know, spraying it down another brother's throat, it would probably be pointed downward. And I've got 10- and 12-year-old boys at home, and I'm sure that I could picture them spraying each other with Afrin um, pretty easily. So things that you don't think about very often that are that are actually probably probably possible at least at my house. So let's move on to another one that might be in the medicine cabinet right beside the afferent and that is camphor. And I don't know about you guys out there but I had camphophenic in my medicine cabinet growing up. My mom put it on everything. I don't think she knew how how toxic camphor actually is if ingested. But Vicks Vapor Rub also has camphor in it, along with Tiger Balm and some other, you know, homeopathic type stuff. Moral of the story is don't eat camphophenic and don't eat Vicks Vapor Rub. Camphor ingestion is is ugly. Severe CNS stimulation, so seizures followed by CNS depression and coma. Small amounts of, of camphor can be fatal, and there's not a whole lot to do for them. You know, benzodiazepines, if you have seizure, manage the airway if you have coma, kind of common sense stuff. And luckily for us that camphor is often combined with salicylates so you can get almost a double whammy there so be careful with some of those home cough cold type remedies uh, camphophenic if you I don't know if they still make that anymore but came in the green bottle and it smelled like camphor and put it on cuts so if you see that stuff or you see a kid that's gotten into that uh, absolutely positively do not blow that one off those, those kids can get sick very fast moving on to another one that we talk about in the EMS world it's one we don't see Quite as much as we used to with the development of new and more effective depression meds, but one that can be really tough on kids is tricyclic antidepressants, PCAs. Um, probably the most common one of those that we still see around today is Elevil or amitriptyline, and that's often used um, off-label for sleep or for migraines. And we talk about TCA action, you know, where do TCAs act? I think the better question is where do they not act? TCAs have action throughout the brain. They inhibit norepinephrine, they inhibit 
serotonin reuptake. And again, serotonin reuptake inhibition is, is, you know, we've gotten more specific with SSRIs, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. So that's why Elevil and the TCAs have been, for the most part, displaced from treating depression. Um, But they also act on sodium channels. They act on GABA receptors. So when you talk about sodium channel action, you're going to get QRS widening. When you talk about GABA action, you're going to get seizures. So patients that overdose on TCAs can be super, super sick. And 10 milligrams per kilogram can be fatal for a child. So if you think about 10 milligrams per kilogram, pretty typical dose of Elevil is 100, 100 milligrams, Elevil or amitriptyline. So it'd be pretty easy to get one pill, 10 milligram, or excuse me, a 10 kilogram child swallows that 100 milligram Elevil is in trouble. So what kind of symptoms are you going to see? Well, we talked a second ago about, you know, CNS symptoms is going to be seizures, respiratory depression cardiovascular collapse, big, wide, nasty QRS on, on the EKG. And I think that's probably where we have this discussion around TCAs the most here at our service is watching for a big, wide, bizarre EKG in, a, in an overdose patient. And how do we teach medics to deal with that? Well, assume that it's a TCA and what's our treatment? Our treatment's going to be bicarb. And remember that in TCA overdoses, oftentimes large amounts of sodium bicarb are needed. Obviously, if there's circulatory collapse, fluids, pressors may be needed. If there's seizures, Obviously, we're going to go to benzodiazepines first. Last one on the list, that gets us through almost all of them. That brings us to the last drug on our list, and that's Lamotil. Uh, Lamotil, not terribly common, but still used for antidiarrheal effects. And Lamotil is actually a combination drug. It's made up of diphenoxalate and atropine. You don't hear diphenoxalate very often, but it's an opiate. And it's actually broken down into an even more active metabolite that acts on the opiate receptors. Um, again, it's used for antidiarrheal effects. So if we found a kid that had access or was, you know, in the spilled bottle of, of Lamotil, you'd be worried about opiate-like toxicity. So again, like we already talked about, respiratory depression, CNS depression, bradycardia, again, fluids, Narcan, supportive care, atropine, pressors if needed. And you can have toxicity with Lamotil with even a half of a tablet. So small amount can be really, really, really dangerous. So let's wrap it up. That concludes our list. Uh, Thank you guys for hanging in there for those. Take some take-home points and we'll wrap this one up. You know, before, I guess before we even hit the wrap up, also know that there are others, one pill killers, small volume killers that are out there. I didn't hit every single one. I tried to hit the ones that were the most deadly and the most likely for us to come into contact with. But there are others. Uh, Methanol, windshield washer fluid, Antimalarials, don't see those terribly commonly in our medicine cabinets. Colchicine for gout, uh, less, some of the less common antiarrhythmics, flecainide and some of the others uh, that patients with AFib may be on. You guys can look those up at your leisure. Again, I didn't want this to go on for two hours and wanted to hit the ones that we most commonly would see. But remember that kids are curious. Assume that they ate all the pills. Assume they didn't spill any of the pills. Assume that they took the pills at the latest point possible and they need observed. Um, know that they exist. Know that there are pills that kids can get into, two-year-olds and three-year-olds, and take one of grandma's, and it can kill them. I think, I think that's, that's a pretty good place for us to start. Delayed onset of symptoms are common. So if you know mom and dad call and you get there, and half an hour after the ingestion, the kid still looks fine, think back to the, you know, the glipizide patient that we talked about under sulfonylureas. You know, five milligrams of glipizide in a two-year-old had a sugar of 49, 11 hours after ingestion with treatment. Um, time of onset for sustained release calcium channel blockers for bradycardia. Hypotension can be greater than 12 hours after the kids take the medicine. And I think this leads right into, you know, we're going to treat these with supportive care, but the main focus and the point of this talk from my standpoint is for you guys out there listening to understand that these exist and to put that in your 
in your tool belt to educate families and to educate parents. And when the kid looks fine and everybody thinks everything's okay and they don't really want to go to the hospital and it's an empty bottle of Clonidine, you have the knowledge to tell them, hey, there are things out there your kids can get into that one pill can be deadly. And that education and that knowledge can be really vital to, to having a good rapport with the parents and to being able to take care of the kid. And finally, probably waited too long in the podcast to say this, but if you need help, if you need guidance, if you need um, some, some backup, always, always, always involve poison control. And 1-800-222-1222, and they will absolutely echo your concerns when we talk about the one-pill killers. And finally, supportive care, it's right up our alley, right? So a lot of talks is supportive care, and that's what we do best. Fluids, pressors, airway management, seizure control. Follow our protocols. You know, this is not a discussion on each of those individual topics, but we know how to do those. And when you see, see a kid that needs seizure control, control them. When they need airway management, manage it. When they're hypotensive, resuscitate them do what we know how to do. So that about wraps it up for today's talk. Please send any questions or concerns our way here at the podcast email, and uh, we look forward to talking to you guys soon. Thanks for joining us. This podcast was brought to you by the Montgomery County Hospital District, Texas. Production and editing by Andrew Adams. Questions or comments, which are always welcome, can be sent to podcast at mchd-tx.org. Make sure to subscribe above to keep updated to all our future casts. Music, copyright, Kevin McLeod, and Competech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.